Today's reading is from Acts chapter 7, verse 54, through chapter 8, verse 4. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Sumeria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jedediah Kim, and I'm one of the pastors at Pineland Covenant Church. Thanks for joining me so much this morning and for joining us for online worship. It's been such an awesome privilege to be able to gather in this way. And I know it's really different from gathering here in this space in our sanctuary. But I absolutely believe that the Spirit of God is with us wherever we are. And we are just as united today as we were six months ago when we were able to gather here. Okay, so now we are continuing our sermon series um, called Holy Disruption, where we've been looking at stories throughout the book of Acts and kind of observing the way that God brought a holy disruption to that first century community. And today, is um, it's a particular word that's hard to share. Um, I want you to know that in my prep, I've been praying and thinking and um, really kind of having a heavy heart because I'm going to say some things that uh, might be challenging for us to hear. It might be some things that you may not want to hear. Um, but I really feel like as we look at the book of Acts, particularly where we are, um, we're going to be looking at the story of Stephen and his life and the response of the church there's so much that we can learn about who the church is and what we're supposed to do, uh, particularly in moments when tragedy becomes reality. And so I'm just going to jump kind of right in to the story. And um, if you haven't been following with us, what we've seen happen in the book of Acts so far is that um, Jesus leaves. And as he leaves, he says, hey, I'm, I want you to go to the upper room and wait for me. And I'm going to send a comfort. The Holy Spirit's come, going to come upon you. And the Holy Spirit comes on the early church in power. Um, it says that they were speaking tongues of, of many languages. And it looked like they had tongues of fire. This very supernatural event. And from that moment on, you know, up until chapter 6, um, where Pastor Sharon preached last week, or the last time she spoke, um, what ended up happening, right, is that the church started to grow. And as the church started to grow and have many different converts, they started to run into conflicts, just like any movement, just like any organization. Um, there was a conflict between um, Jews and Grecian Jews, um, those who weren't quite fully Greek, 
are fully Jewish in their way, perhaps, but a bit more Hellenistic and a bit more adoptive to the culture. And Pastor Sharon did an amazing job talking about how the church responded in the midst of that crisis. And, and from that sermon and from that moment in that church's history, there arose this man by the name of Stephen. Um, and he is one of the key characters in the early church. Um, he is given a lot of honor um, as a leader. He's, he's positioned as one of the leaders um, to take care of different issues in the church. And we see that he is truly a man that is filled by God. So what happens um, between chapter 6 and 7 and the beginning of chapter 8? It's kind of a long thing, and so I'm not going to read all of it. What happens is that Stephen um, gets falsely accused of blasphemy. And um, the people who end up arresting him are actually religious leaders. And they don't like what he's saying. They don't like what he's preaching about Jesus. And because of that, these religious leaders, who are also the um, officials of the law, um, or the legal officials of the law presence, they bring him, they arrest him, and they bring him um, before the court. And, and they basically bring false witnesses. And they say, um, hey, these witnesses are saying that you're speaking blasphemy. Um, blasphemy would mean that, you know, not honoring God and kind of um, saying that, you know, Jesus was true God and all this kind of stuff, right? And so basically they, they bring this false charge and there's false witnesses. And what ends up happening is that Stephen has to give an account. And, and, and when he's standing before these religious leaders who have arrested him, these um, uh, people of the law, uh, not just biblical law, but law of the land, like they were the ones who would handle all the legal cases, um, he starts speaking about Jesus, and he starts telling them the truth about who Jesus is. And, and his spirit during the whole time, if you read chapters 6, 7, and 8, it's, it's like his face is full of wonder. The people could tell that he looked like an angel, right? So even though he was speaking truth, there was something very profound about Stephen. Uh, you can visibly see it. And yet the religious leaders wanted nothing to do with it. And I think the first point that I just want to recognize, right, and say right off the bat, is that if we are truly people who are living our lives for Jesus, and if we are truly living into the gospel, there are going to come times when we are persecuted for what we believe. There are going to be times when even religious people, people who are entrusted and seen by culture as having the truth and knowing the way, even those people at times are going to persecute us. They're going to bring false accounts against us. They're going to um, um, make things work against us. Why? Not because we're horrible people, right? Stephen was filled with the Spirit. He looked like an angel. He had he was shining in the glory of God, and they didn't like what he said. You know, they felt like it was against their religious ideas. And it's really important that when you're someone who's living truly into the gospel living deeper into a relationship with Jesus and allowing him to transform your life and your voice and your power and your privilege and you're living in such a way that you're bringing kingdom change into this world, you're going to find yourself in situations when people don't understand you and they will persecute you and mistreat you. And sometimes it will be religious people. It will be church people who won't understand why you're talking about what you're talking about and why you're doing what you're doing, right? But the reason why Stephen felt so compelled to talk about Jesus and the reason why we feel so compelled to talk about Jesus is because of Jesus. 
It's not because of our own selfish agendas. It's not because, you know, we we have a plan for everything and we think we know everything. No, 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 no. It's because Jesus is transforming our life. And we believe that the kingdom of God is here, that we can live into that gospel now. And, and what Jesus says about those who are on the margins and what Jesus says about those who are oppressed and what Jesus says about those who are struggling and how the kingdom of God is for them, how we came to save the, the sick and not the healthy. If you look at Jesus' ministry, people who persecute him are often the religious people, church people, right? The Pharisees get such a bad rep. But if we're honest, many of us would probably identify more with the Pharisees than we would than with those at the margins. Why? Because they were church-going good people. Those people, right, the religious people, were the same ones who had now taken Stephen and were accusing him falsely and were bringing him to trial. And even in the midst of that, Stephen preaches the truth. Why? Because Jesus had transformed his life. When Jesus transforms your life, when, when he gets a hold of you in such a way and the gospel of Jesus takes root in your life, even when you face that oppression, you're going to speak the truth. And it might cost you. It will cost you. And oftentimes it might come from friends and family and religious people, people who think they have religion and no religion. But Jesus is going to be a stumbling block. Jesus is what might be offensive to them. And so I just want you to hear that, right? That that is common. And even in the early church, that's what was happening, right? Stephen was a good man doing good work. But his love for Jesus and what Christ in him compelled him to say ended up costing him something severe at the hands of religious people. And so what happens? Well, he preaches, And he talks about Jesus. And as he talks about Jesus, it says that in our passage today, you heard it, right? That they they couldn't hear it anymore and they like kind of freak out. There's this um, description and I I love it. I want to read it, right? It says that when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him, right? They were viscerally angry. Um, and, And he looked up to heaven and Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says these words, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And it says here in verse 57, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. They couldn't take it anymore. They couldn't take what was coming from his mouth, that truth. And he was physically tearing them apart. So what did they do? They dragged him out into the city with stones and they started to stone him. Can you imagine that? Religious people stoning Stephen for loving Jesus. But that's exactly what they did. And and there's an interesting thing here. It says here that, meanwhile the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing. Even at death's door, Stephen has a Christ-like heart. You know, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And, And he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Even as he's dying, he has a Christ-like heart. And he dies. He is the church's first martyr. And, and and we see for the first time in the book of Acts this character named Saul getting introduced. 
And we know who he becomes later. He's Saul of Tarsus now, but he later becomes Paul the Apostle. And it's interesting, right? Because he himself may not have been throwing stones, but, but people were taking off their coats and laying at his feet while they were stoning Stephen. And by being there, he approved of their killing. Saul was someone who was persecuting Christians. He was throwing them into prison. He was approving of, of death because he thought that people who blasphemed deserved to die. Now, what happens next in the early church and the response is what I want us to pay attention to. And I'm just going to speak to it just for a few more moments and then we'll be done. But it says here that on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. There was a great persecution that arose. So if the tragedy of losing Stephen, if the tragedy of seeing Stephen die unjustly at the hands of religious people wasn't enough, persecution started breaking out against the church. And everyone, right, that whole movement that was starting to form and centralize became decentralized. They had to flee. They had to run. Because people, like Saul, were going from house to house, dragging people out of their homes, throwing them into prison for following Jesus. And this persecution, right, is a big deal in this early church. Why? Because the movement had started back in Acts chapter 2, and was growing and growing and growing. And now there's leaders and now there's conflict. But they're resolving conflict. And it seems like something is happening, right? It seems like something is forming. And it's centralizing. And it's trying to find its shape and its identity. And then all of a sudden, Stephen gets killed unjustly. And the whole movement, which is centralized, gets spread out. It gets decentralized. Their tragedy had become their reality. Now, I imagine that they had a few options here, right? When tragedy becomes reality, you have a few choices. And the early church had a few choices here in this situation, right? They could have called it quits. They could have said, I'm done. This movement is whack. It's finished. You know, Stephen's getting killed. This guy saw, I don't know who he is, but he's really zealous and he's going out and he's, he's a Pharisee and, and he's going out and he's like hunting people, right? I'm going to denounce Jesus. I'm done with this. Right, that, that could have happened in the early church, you know? I mean, it's not unreasonable to think about because when Jesus was taken and he was crucified, people had that very same reaction. They quit and they fled. And even his closest disciples, right, abandoned Jesus. And Peter denied him three times. And so maybe after Stephen's death, right, this person who seems Christ-like in his life, even after his death, right, when tragedy becomes reality, the church could flee. Right? They could say, I'm done. Right? Um, um, they were, they were disbanded and they were running, fleeing, but they could have, like, fleed from faith. Right? They could have said, I don't want anything to do with Jesus anymore. I'm gonna go and save myself. Right? The other thing that they could have done, right, was complain. They could have said, you know what, this is too much. Cost is too high. And, you know, it's not worth it. People are dying now for a belief in this person. Like, you know what? No, 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 no. I, I, you know, we're already running. That's, you know, that's that's one thing, right? I can't be there. Um, but you know what? Um, it, it goes beyond that, you know? 
And they could have complained. They could have been frustrated. And they could have said, you know, it's all done. And they could have quit. And honestly, right? I mean, on one hand, we can sit here and be like, well, you know, as good followers of Jesus, people wouldn't do that. But they were human. They were human. If you found yourself in that situation, right? If we knew right now in the city of Sammamish that there were people hunting Christians and one of our church members was pulled from their home and, and murdered, execution style, what would you do? Wouldn't you be afraid? Wouldn't you want to quit? Wouldn't you want to possibly run and rethink everything? You see, in moments when tragedy becomes reality, um, it gets serious. And it gets really, really difficult and really, really heavy. And so the early church was finding themselves, they were finding themselves in that situation. And they had a choice. They were already fleeing, but they could have fleed from the faith, fleed from Jesus, and they could have complained, and they could have grumbled, and they could have said, you know what? This is not worth it. I'm done. But that's not what they did. When tragedy became reality, that is not what the early church did. And I want you to hear this. It says here in chapter 8, verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Those who had been scattered, right, who were running away for their lives because they were being hunted and systematically killed for believing in Jesus, preached Jesus wherever they went. They continued to be the church they continued to be people who were transformed and set on fire by the Holy Spirit. They continued to be people who were looking for opportunities to live in the kingdom of God because they believed that there was this person who resurrected from the grave. And even when their life was in danger, and even when they couldn't be with each other, even when they couldn't come and be a part of that centralized movement and, and be with all those brothers and sisters that they had started to meet and, 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 and kind of feel that closeness and that energy, even when they couldn't do that, they continued to preach wherever they went. And because of this, the early church grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. They grew. They really grew. This centralized movement that was starting to find its identity, tragedy hits that community. It's decentralized. Everyone is running for their lives. But rather than running and quitting and complaining, they spread out and they continue to live into the truth of the kingdom of God. They continue to live into the truth of the life of Jesus. And because of this, the gospel went forward in ways that they could not have ever imagined before. Because of their faithfulness, they experienced the kingdom of God in ways that they could not have imagined in this centralized place. Now, now what am I trying to say here? I just want to say this just for a few more moments and we'll be done. I know that we have been in this pandemic now for over six months. And you know, for a long time, I, I was kind of living my life like, okay, I just have to go a few more weeks. I just have to go one more month, right? I just have to go a few more days and it'll be okay. And then that passed. And okay, you know, just a little bit longer and it'll be okay. And then that passed. And oh, I can't. Here's, here's the thing. The tragedy 
right, that we all experienced when the coronavirus hit, of us not being able to gather together again, of us being separated, being decentralized, that tragedy has now become our reality. And in some ways, right, like there's this eerie parallel, right? We're not being systematically hunted and, and, and being killed for our faith. That's absolutely true. But death, death and sickness is what is happening in our country. Now, I know, I know that many people have different views on the coronavirus and different views about how serious it is and all of that. I, I know that. And I recognize it and I hear that. I still think that we can still recognize there are over 210,000 people who have died. And that they're saying that this fall, right, it might be another second wave. Um, numbers this week, you know, were higher than we've had in a long time. And uh, people are already starting to feel that in, in countries around the world. Now, look, I'm not trying to stoke fear. I'm not trying to make you more nervous. What I'm trying to help you do is to realize that perhaps... The tragedy we all experience is no longer a tragedy, but it is now our reality. It is what we are in. It is what we are navigating through. It is our life now. It is our new normal, at least for um, a period of time. Now, I miss you all. I miss being together. I miss worshiping. I miss singing. I miss all of those things. But we can't keep thinking about the reality of tragedy. We can't keep saying, oh, we're we're in that state now and, and boo-hoo and what do we do, right? Because we're in a new reality. And I believe that in this new reality, we have a choice. We have a choice. We can grumble, we can complain, we can be frustrated. I know that I've done that. I know that other people have done that. I know that some of you have done that. And that's totally okay, right? You're human. It's okay to not be okay. That's still true. You know, uh, we all struggle. But we also have another choice, right? When tragedy becomes reality. And that is to continue to live into the reality of the kingdom of God. To continue to live more deeply into the life of Jesus. Where you are. Spread out decentralized. Now, I know that some of you guys are like, no, 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 J.D., we have to come together to experience God and be together. And I, and I will say, we are going to come together again. Right? But if for some reason you feel like the church is not the church without us being together, it's just not true. The church has grown and has multiplied and is still connected and is still the body of Christ, regardless of what is happening. You know, there are some places in the world where people can't meet for worship ever. Because like the early church, they will get persecuted and killed for gathering together to worship. Does that mean that they are not a church or somewhat less of a church because they can't meet like we can because of the freedom of religion we experience? No, of course not. Right? Our, our body, right? Um, the body of Christ is not tied to a building. We know this. We've talked about it. It's not connected to time or space. But it is connected to the power of the Holy Spirit, to Christ. And that is what unites us. Now, here's, here's some ironic things, okay? And I don't mean to knock anyone, but I just want you to hear this. Because it's true. I've experienced it to be true. Um, I know that we can't meet together. And I know that it's hard for us and people really want to get back together. I absolutely hear that. You know, the, ironic, the, the funny thing, the ironic thing about that is that 
When we were having Sunday services every week and we were coming together, it's not like our numbers were growing and we were so like packed out the door. Actually, our numbers were dwindling. They've been getting smaller and smaller in terms of attendance for the last three years. Now, I know that because as part of my job, I collect the numbers. And it was interesting, right? Because what we started seeing was that some people would come to church once every four weeks, once every six weeks, right? Because life was busy, different things. You know, it's not a judgment call. It's just a reality statement. And so we were trying to get people to show up on Sunday, right? Um, When we were able to meet on Sunday and they weren't showing up, our numbers were dwindling. Another interesting thing, right, is that people love to sing. I know that people are like, I miss worship, and I miss the ability to sing. Um, let me just say, right, that as a pastor of worship, for the last 13 years, what I have worked on with other people on our worship teams, they will tell you that the number one thing, or one of the top three things that we have to do and I have to work on in terms of my job, is to get people to sing. Because people will come to church and they will not want to engage. And it's really, really difficult getting people to engage. And so I find it ironic that all of a sudden it's like, well, we can't sing and we really would want to sing. And so I think there's an interesting question I ask myself, right, when I think about these things. Is it really that we want to come back together and that we want to sing? Or is it that maybe it's just because we can't do it, right? I'm sure that the reasons are complex and it's not just binary. But what I'm saying is when we have the freedom to gather and the freedom to sing, it's not like people were doing it in droves anyway. Right? We had to work to get people to be here, and we I had to work to get people to sing. But now that it's been taken away, it's like we crave it and we long for it. And perhaps we took it for granted, and maybe that's a lesson that we can learn there. Um, but the reality is, is why why do we want to come back so quickly? Why do we feel like that's necessary? Um, you know, what I feel like is necessary more than anything else is is preserving life and keeping everyone safe. Um, And realizing, right, that the church is much more than just a group of people meeting in a building at a certain moment in time. You know, what am I saying? When tragedy becomes reality, if we live into what Jesus has for us, perhaps there's some things that we can gain. Perhaps there's some secret blessings that might arise, right? Now, I'm not... Some people have lost friends and loved ones due to the coronavirus. I'm not making light of this. And I'm not saying that God, you know, that hidden in behind this is a blessing. And, and, you know, that's why God brought you. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about any of that. But what I am saying is that as we continue to serve God where we are, as we continue to be safe and to take care of our lives and take care of our loved ones, there might be some things that we find that are maybe even some answers to prayer or some good things that come as a result of that. Here's an example. I know one of the things that a lot of people would say around here in these parts is, you know, I'm just too busy. I'm just too busy and, and I wish for a slower pace of life. Well, you now have your slower pace of life. Now, I know on some levels it's made things busier, but I've heard many people say that since the pandemic, life has slowed down. Right? Uh, here's another thing. I know some people have said, you know, I really wish I could see my family more. Like the kids are running around to sports and... And my spouse is running around with work, and I'm running around doing stuff, and I just, I just wish that we could see family more. Now, on the flip side, it's like, oh, I see my family way too much. <laughs> I wish I could have some space, right? Because all I have is family time. And I know it's not the same. I know it's hard, and I have those struggles too. But for some people, I've heard them say, you know what? I've spent much more time to my loved ones, and I feel more connected to my spouse now than I did before the pandemic. You know, in terms of faith, 
you know, perhaps one thing that we can ask ourselves is, you know, maybe we became dependent on having to show up on Sunday and having to, you know, hear songs and hear preaching. Our following Jesus is about taking up our own crosses, right? And so what if God is allowing this opportunity for you to, to follow him in an intentional way, right? For you to read the scriptures and study the scriptures. For you to engage in a life of prayer and a life of worship, you know? There's plenty of opportunities, right? I mentioned the journey. I mentioned the book club. There's life groups doing different things, you know? And some of the life groups, you know, are starting to even meet here on campus with masks, you know, socially distanced, you know? I'm, I'm not making light of the connection, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that when tragedy becomes reality, we have a choice. You know, we can we can flee and run and, and be isolated in ourselves and complain and grumble. Or we can continue to live faithfully as the church, just like the early church did. And, and if we do that, I, I really think that there might be some things that we find. Some opportunities to, to um, lean into what Christ is possibly inviting us into. Spending time with our family, right? Taking some ownership over our own spiritual growth and discipleship. Um, taking some initiative, right? Rather than just having everything just given to us. In church, I really believe that we have a choice. You know, and it's no longer to live in the woe is me. It's no longer to live in, oh, this is sad. But to say, you know, what are the possibilities that we can do while keeping each other safe, while valuing our health? What are the possibilities that we can do when tragedy becomes reality? I really believe that if we if we have that posture and we ask Jesus, what are you inviting me into, right? If we stop thinking about the things that we can't do and start leaning into the things that we can do now more because of where we are, I really think that we can see something special. We can see God move in ways in our life, in our family, in our church that we could not before because that's exactly what happened to this first century church. So my encouragement to you this morning is very simple, right? Stop thinking about what you can't do. And instead, ask God to reveal to you what you can do in this moment. What we can do in this moment as a church. You know, the ways that we could reach out and love our neighbors and, and care for each other. The ways that we can take some personal responsibility for our faith. You know, the ways that we can connect to God and to ourselves. I want you to take time to think about what you can do and it's hard and you're not alone you know but continuing to live um, in a state of of sadness is no longer going to help us because even after we get together again you know even if there's a, a vaccine that works and is rolled out things are not going to be the same we're not going to go back we can only move forward and when i think see this early church and what they did when tragedy hit reality they continued to live into the life that Jesus was calling them to, and they saw amazing things. That's what I want for us. That's what I want for us when tragedy has become our reality, which it has. May we be people who don't think about what we can't do anymore, but we start thinking about what we can do and lean into all that Christ has for us. And because of that faith, because of that obedience, because of that willingness to dive in, may we see the kingdom of God in ways that we have not that's my hope for you, for all of us. That's what I'm trying to live into. I've given up the idea, right, that I'm just holding on and things are going to go back. No, I'm moving forward. We're all moving forward, whether we like it or not, you know. 
my hope is that our eyes are open to what God might be doing and we can see him work in our lives in new ways. Let me say a prayer for us, you know, as we go from this place. Father in heaven, I'm so grateful for this time that I've had to share your word. And um, man, this has been hard for me. I've been weighing um, these words and thinking about what to say and how to say them. And Lord, I pray that you would just um, allow truth to be in the hearts of people, allow it to go forward um, and transform. And, and may we as your church, may we as your people, God, um, truly see that when tragedy becomes reality, we have a choice. And rather than being stuck and being swallowed by fear and being swallowed by what we can't do, God, may we lean more into what we can do. May we be safe, not reckless. May we be wise. And in the midst of that, Lord God, may we, through your Holy Spirit, be aware of the things that you are inviting us into those opportunities that we could not have had elsewhere, God, would you help us to see them? And would you help us to experience the kingdom of God in new ways as we faithfully follow you? Just like this early church did, God, when tragedy became the reality, Lord. We give ourselves to you. We pray that you will do this, Lord God, for every single person. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.